The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements to bring everybody up to date. I got a phone call yesterday afternoon about 12.30, and it was Ulan. And he informed me that he had just been, he and his wife just been picked up by the Norwegian police, and they were taken to a deportation center, and they were going to be sent to Germany. So we alerted some contacts in Germany who have, who met him, or have, they found out that he is there and where he is. They're going to try to connect with him tomorrow. We have, uh, through some generous people, we managed to secure a lawyer for him. And so we need to be in prayer that uh, all this will eventually work its way out. Also remember to pray for George Meisinger. But uh, that's the latest on Ulan. So I'll keep you up to date. One other announcement I don't have up here yet, but that is um, something that just slipped my mind simply because I'm used to pastoring a church that's about uh, 2,000 miles away from where anything is happening. So I, nobody ever went anywhere that I went. But there are two conferences that I go to every year that are open to non-professional clergy. That's layman to other people. And those of you who are interested in uh, really getting into the study of the Word, you would enjoy both of these conferences. One is the Conservative Theological Society, which meets the first week of August in Dallas. And one of the speakers is Charlie Clough this year. Charlie's spoken the last two years. I am not speaking this year. Wayne House is also speaking, and the subject of the whole conference is on eschatology. And it should be a pretty good conference. It, it, they they uh, meet every year, and there's more and more uh, people who show up who are not seminary students or professional theologians or pastors. And I know uh, two or three here have uh, been in the past. The other conference is the first week of... It's not a, neither conference is a week long. They start Monday morning and end at noon on Wednesday. The other conference is the pre-trib rapture study group meeting that is the first week in December. And that starts on a Monday morning and goes till noon on Wednesday. And there have been a number of you have also uh, been to that. That's also a good, good conference and we'll get some information, uh, to you. We ordered some brochures from, uh, uh, the Conservative Theological Society of the day. We'll have those out on the table so you can look at those. I think that's about it. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that though our sins are all paid for at the cross and we are saved and they're no longer an issue in terms of our eternal salvation, whenever we sin, it breaks that fellowship with the Lord. It uh, quenches the Holy Spirit, shuts down that sanctification ministry that He has in our life, 
And that is only regained and recovered when we admit or acknowledge our sins to the Lord. So we begin every class with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit in terms of fellowship, and then I open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we have you to come to, that you are the God of the universe. You are the God who is in control of all of history, and you are in control of the details of our lives. Father, we thank you for the fact that Ulan is still safe, and he is now in Germany. And we thank you for those who have made uh, various uh, things available to us for his uh, assistance. We pray that the lawyers involved will have wisdom and skill and that you would just provide guidance uh, for the future for his life and for his family. Father, we pray for us as a congregation as we look at a future place to meet. We pray that you would guide and direct us in the negotiations and in a search for a a place that is ours. Uh, Father, we pray for us now as we study your word that we would be responsive to the challenge that the Holy Spirit brings to each of us, that as we study your word, the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us and teaches us, challenges us with it. And, Father, we pray that we would have the spiritual courage to respond with positive volition and apply these things in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in Abram, Abraham, and we are in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. And as the curtain goes up, In Genesis chapter 17, some 13 years has gone by since we closed out Genesis chapter 16. Chapter 16 dealt with a test related to the faith rest drill. It was Abram's opportunity to trust God that God would provide the promised seed through whom his descendants would come. We remember the story where... Sarah gave him alternate plan B. She could not conceive because she was barren, and so she put forth her handmaiden, Hagar, and said, why don't you take her as your wife, and the offspring will be the promised seed. So they went to a typical idea of trying to help God solve the problem, and it just created more problems. In fact, those problems have reverberated down through history. Abram failed a test related to the faith rest drill, and that test really focused on the concept of waiting. It also focused on grace orientation. God had graciously promised this to Abraham. He had promised him many things, that he would have innumerable descendants, and that God would bless the nations through Abram's seed. And this was tremendous, a tremendous presentation of God's grace, But Abram failed to trust God, and he failed to appreciate this gracious gift. So he failed in both of those tests related to both of those spiritual skills. Now, we've studied the faith rest drill in terms of waiting on the Lord, and we looked at a number of promises. Among those were Isaiah 30, verse 18, Isaiah 40, verse 31, Psalm 37, 34, and Psalm 27, 14. Those are good verses to 
to memorize. I think all of us seem to have this patience problem when it comes to the plan of God and the blessings of God. And so rather than waiting on the Lord, we try to just barge ahead and we make the same mistakes that Abram made. So Abram now has to go through a divinely imposed test. God is going to teach him to wait. For 13 years, Abram has to wait. God makes sure he learns the lesson. When this started in chapter 16, Sarai was 77. It seemed pretty impossible that she would have a child. She was barren. She was uh, past the age of bearing children. And now at the age of 90, 13 years later, the situation is even more hopeless. And Abram is now 99. But God wants Abram to learn the principle of waiting He wants Abram to learn the principle that God is the God who is in charge of hopeless situations. That no matter how difficult the problem may be, no matter how hopeless the circumstances may seem, God is the one who is able to overcome all problems. No matter what your problems may be, God has a solution for that problem, and that solution, as always, is in the Word of God. And so Abram has to learn that God is the one whom he can trust and that God will fulfill his promises. That he is being taught the lesson that God is omnipotent and his power is all-sufficient. Now that's one of those concepts that so many least conservative evangelical believers talk about. But it's a concept I find that too many of us don't really understand. I mean, we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, that his work on the cross is sufficient to pay for all of our sins. And usually you find people can relax on that. There's a few that have trouble, and they think they can commit some sin that is too great for the grace of God, that they can commit some sin that God didn't know about in eternity past, and so Jesus Christ didn't die for it. But for the most part, Bible-believing Christians trust in the sufficiency of Christ's work. We also believe in the sufficiency of grace, that God's grace is sufficient to handle all of our problems. We talk about that. We use that word a lot, that God's grace is sufficient. We talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, that's where things start getting a little flaky, especially in our modern era. The sufficiency of Scripture means that the Scripture is all we need to face, handle, and surmount the problems, the challenges that we face, and to have real peace, stability, happiness, and tranquility in our soul. After all, that's what the Bible teaches. You don't need anything else. You don't need sociological studies. You don't need uh, psychology You don't need a lot of uh, group therapy or sensitivity training. You don't need to go through uh, courses where you learn how to get in touch with the uh, inner child or any of these other things that unbelievers have developed in order to find some solution to life's problems. And that, when you when you put it the way I just put it, it really scares people because we have grown up in this society that is so psychotherapeutic that we think that there's no other way to solve problems than through psychotherapy. 
We are, our vocabulary is loaded with these terms. And so for somebody to come along and say that no matter what problem you face in your marriage, no matter what problems you face in your life, whatever problems you face in terms of addictions or other things, the Word of God promises that we can overcome all of these things because the root problem is sin. The root problem is not the way you were raised. The root problem is not the uh, socioeconomic background that you have. The root problem is not your education or lack of it. The root problem is sin and sinful approaches to handling human problems. And so the solution starts with understanding the truth of God's Word and utilizing the problem-solving devices of spiritual skills outlined in Scripture, and we go forward on that basis. Part of the reason is that people don't really understand the word sufficiency. It almost sounds like it's not quite enough. It's just sufficient. But that's not what it means. The word sufficient means enough. And God's grace is always enough, more than enough. But it always meets us with just what we need and not more. Think about what was going on in the wilderness when the Israelites had left Egypt and they get out in the wilderness and there's no food and they started complaining and God said that he would provide a miraculous uh, nourishment for them and that came in the form of manna. And each morning they would get up, they would go out into the wilderness and the stuff that came down with the dew and looked like a, a wafer and tasted like honey or coriander seed and, and they would gather it. The Lord said, just gather enough for that day. And, of course, there were always those who didn't quite trust the Lord, so they gathered enough for the next three or four days. And if they had an excess, it just rotted overnight and turned to worms and became very nasty. But God was teaching the principle of sufficiency, that God always gives enough. He can give more than enough, but He's always going to give just what we need to solve a problem. We have the sufficiency of grace. It's always enough. He will give more but it's always sufficient for the problem. Same thing with the work of Christ. It's more than enough to take care of all the problems of sin, but it is enough to handle every sin issue in your life. Same thing with the sufficiency of Scripture. There is more than enough information in the Scripture to handle any and every problem in your life. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following, teaches that God has given us everything related to life, and it says godliness, but the best way to understand that is the spiritual life. Two different categories there. Whatever arena you face, the Word of God gives you everything you need. Not most of what you need, not some of what you need, but everything the Scripture says. That's sufficiency. So sufficiency means that it is enough. That whatever the situation, whatever the problem Whatever the difficulty, God's power, God's promises, God's provision are always enough. So Abram has to learn this, and he has to go through 13 years of silence from God. No theophanies, no special appearances with a renewal of the promise. 13 years. Now, in the previous 13 years, there had been two or three appearances of God and reaffirmations of the promise. But now God is going to teach him to wait with this imposed silence. Now, what was going on during that time? 
Romans chapter 4 gives us a bit of an idea of what was happening during that time. Romans 4.16 says, For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. Now, Romans 4, just to get the context of Romans 4, Romans 4 is an exposition on justification by faith alone. And in the middle of this chapter, which uses Abram as an example, an illustration from the Old Testament to help us understand the principle of justification by faith, Paul talks about the faith that Abram exhibited. He says, For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. In other words, the only thing that fits with grace, that's consistent with grace, is faith alone. Faith is a non-meritorious system of knowledge. And faith looks at something. The merit is in what faith looks at, either the cross of Christ, which is sufficient for sins, or the Word of God, which is sufficient to, uh, for our spiritual life. It is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are the law, that would be Jews, but also to those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So we as Gentiles are spiritual seed of Abraham because we follow him in faith. We have the same kind of faith in Christ that Abraham had. His faith anticipated Christ Ours look back to Christ. So those are the two categories. Verse 17. Verse 17. Now 17 and 18 in Romans 4 relate specifically to what's going to happen in the first few verses of Genesis 17. Romans 4.17 says, As it is written, A father of many nations I have made you. That's right out of Genesis chapter 17 where he renames Abraham in Genesis 17.5. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Romans 4.18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. That is, who contrary to what human viewpoint confidence would be based in. Human viewpoint would have no confidence when it came to a 90-year-old woman uh, becoming pregnant and giving birth to a son. So contrary to that confidence in real divine viewpoint confidence based on the Word of God, he believed so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. See, he's he's learned the lesson. That's why God appears to him in Genesis chapter 17 and reaffirms the covenant and gives him a new name as a pledge of God's promise. And then in verse 19, and without becoming weak, in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now, some of you can relate to this. He looked down at himself and he said, there's no way I'm ever going to have kids. But he did not become weak in faith. He knew that God was able, God's grace was sufficient, and God's power was more than enough to enable him to father children. So now, as good as dead, that is, his body was sexually dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And this is Abram's faith. So that is what was going on between the end of chapter 16 
and the beginning of chapter 17 is Abraham was growing spiritually. He was trusting God. He was claiming promises. He was learning to wait on the Lord. And as he did so, he was growing spiritually. The faith rest drill was the primary means of spiritual growth in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's activated in the church age by walking by the Spirit. It's energized through God, the Holy Spirit. We can't just say in the power of our flesh, well, I'm going to trust God. There's more to it than that. We have to learn to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and that means we have to be in fellowship. That did not apply in the Old Testament in terms of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was not given to Old Testament believers for their spiritual life. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to only a few men like Moses and the men who worked on the tabernacle, some of the judges such as Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, kings such as Saul, David, Solomon had the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit wasn't given to them for their spiritual growth. It was given to them to give them skill or wisdom in leadership or administrative functions for the kingdom of Israel. It was all related to God's plan in terms of the theocracy of Israel. It wasn't, the Holy Spirit was not given for their spiritual life. They're not indwelt by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit in the way that New Testament believers are. So that's an important distinction. The mechanic in the Old Testament was a faith rest drill. Now, let's look at our chapter here in Genesis. Chapter 17 has four divisions. The first three paragraphs, or the first three sections, relate to God's, God's provision to Abraham. God's provision to Abraham and his promise to Abraham. The last five verses, verses 23 to 27, relate to Abraham's application of God's mandate in the first 20, God's mandates in the first 22 verses. So 17, 1 through 8 is where God reiterates his promise to Abram. And as a pledge, he changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. And 17, 9 through 14, which is the crux of the chapter, God stipulates that Abraham now and his descendants need to obey the requirements of circumcision. That's the centerpiece of this whole passage, as we'll see in a second. In 1715 to 22, God changes the name of Sarah. So there is a pledge to Abraham and a pledge to Sarah by means of this name change that indicates a new position, new status, and new role. When we get to that, I want you to think about what we studied on Sunday night. If you were here Sunday night, we came to the end of the letter to the uh, church in Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2. And in there, there's a promise to the victorious believer that he's given a white stone, and it has his na- a new name engraved on it. This is the background for that concept. It's a new name indicating a new status, new privileges, and new position. And that's what this is all about. So it's a, uh, it's, it, God is increasing his uh, promise or elements of his promise related to the Abrahamic covenant. So you have uh, four sections. The first was 17, 1 to 8. 
the second, 17.9 to 14. The third, 17.15 to 28, that God specifies the promise will come through Sarai, who's given a new name. And then 17.23 to 27, Abram's obedience to the covenant. This is where he applies the mandates related to circumcision. Now, to understand the thrust of this chapter, this narrative, we have to look at literary structure. I think this is one of the greatest insights that have come out of the late 20th century in terms of studying uh, context of Scripture, is the literary structure of these passages, that these guys didn't just simply sit down and write a nice story, but there was a tremendous amount of thought put into it, both uh, in terms of the human writer of Scripture as well as the divine author behind it. But the structure itself shows where the emphases are. And we've studied this before, and one of the most popular uses of literary structure is the chiasm. Uh, that's spelled C-H-I-A-S-M, based on the Greek word that if you went, were in a fraternity in college, you said it was the letter chi. But if you studied Greek anywhere in the uh, uh, Western world, you learned that it was pronounced ki. So that always messes people up because we all learned that pi r squared, but then when you start teaching Greek, learning Greek, it was p r squared. So it took a while to get past that. Anyhow, it's a chiasm. This is what it looks like. You have various statements that are made and things that are said throughout a chapter. And they, they're structured a certain way. And you can break it down into different sentences. And the way you do this is you label them A, B, C, D, and so on. And then as you work through the second half of the passage, the second half mirrors or reflects the first half. So those statements become A prime, B prime, C prime, and so on. So what we see in this structure is that at the beginning, we're told Abram was 99 years old at the first part of verse 1. In the B statement, the Lord appears to Abram. That's the second thing we learned. When Abram was 99 years old, that's the A statement. The Lord appeared to Abram. B statement. God speaks then to Abram. In the next part, says to him, I am Almighty God. This is his first speech. There are actually about four speeches in this section. The first speech is the last part of B. I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then there's a response from Abram. He falls on his face. This is the E statement in verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. And then God speaks again. This is the second speech from God. God says, As for me, behold, my covenant with you, and you shall, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, your name shall be Abram. So there's a name change, and he's promised that nations will come from him, and now kings will come from him. That's an expansion on the promise. And then G, which is the seventh statement, is the third speech from God. And this begins in verse 9, and God said to Abraham, and it extends down through verse 14. That's the centerpiece of the chapter. 
And it's God's instruction to Abraham that he should be circumcised. Every male child in his family shall be circumcised. Every male child in his household shall be circumcised. And it would take place when they are at eight days, not any earlier than eight days. Then we start backing up in terms of subject. We come to F1. F1 is the fourth speech. It is a name change of Sarah. There is a promise that she will be the mother of nations and kings. So that is a mirror reflection of the F statement, the name change to Abraham. And uh, that takes, F1 takes place in 15 through 16. Then again, in, we have Abram falling on his face in verse 17 again. So see how that is a mirror reflection of verse 3, where Abram fell on his face at God's first speech to him. And then there's a fifth speech from God. I think I said four earlier. There are five. Fifth speech from God in verses 19 through 21, where he reiterates the fact that Sarah would be the one that would bear the son. It wouldn't be done through a surrogate. God is not going to honor human viewpoint methods for achieving he, his ends. Wood, hay, and straw never glorifies God. And then God ceases speaking in 22a, where it says, Then he finished talking with him. That is a reflection of the C statement in one, the uh, latter part of 1b. God speaking, God beginning to speak there, and then God goes up from him in 22b. God departs, and then we are told in verses 24 to 25, once again, that Abraham was 99 years old when this took place. So there is a, you see this chiasm, see it, if you put an X there, which is the Greek word, which is the Greek letter chi, it's just that left side that is imposed there. So you see how the structure there, it's, it's, it's like framing a picture. Everything points to that center element, and that center element is the third speech. So when you look at this chapter, while there are many things we learn and can apply in this chapter, in the mind of the writer of this section, the focal point is on God's instruction on circumcision as a sign of the covenant. This is an application of doctrine. So it relates to what? Think back a minute. When we talk about what what we have in the spiritual life, we use two terms. Very important to get these two terms down if you're going to understand the Scripture. One is positional reality. The other is experiential reality. Those are terms familiar to many of you. Our positional reality Uh, deals with what we have as Christians in Christ. These are our eternal realities given to us at the instant of salvation. God did at least 40 different things for us at the instant of salvation, which can never be lost, uh, with the exception of the 40th, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit. When we sin, that uh, that filling of the Holy Spirit is squelched, and it's only when we confess our sins that we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So those are positional realities. They are ours unconditionally. They are not based on what we do. You got it? It's not based on what you do. You're, you're adopted into the royal family. 
You are a priest to God. You have eternal security. You have the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. You're redeemed, propitiated, and on and on and on. We can go through the whole list. Those can never be lost. They are your positional realities. Now, when we started this study of Abraham, I got into the Abrahamic covenant. I said the Abrahamic covenant is to Israel what our positional blessings are in Christ. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. That means it's not dependent on Abraham's behavior, obedience, or disobedience in any way at all. God is making these promises to Abraham based totally and exclusively on God's own character and not on Abraham's character. So there's no if clause there. It's not saying, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to make, uh, have many nations come from you if you'll obey me. He says, no, it's flat promise. It's an unconditional promise. The Davidic covenant, the land covenant, the new covenant, these are all unconditional promises. They are positional absolutes. They are not ever dependent on Israel's obedience or on Abraham's obedience. But it seems that to some people that there's a contradiction in verse or in chapter 17. And we'll look at this. Because there seems to be a condition. The Lord appears to Abram in verse 1 and says, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. It appears that the command to walk before God and to be blameless is a precondition for the covenant. Now, how do we know that that's not true? How do we know that this isn't a condition that God is establishing for giving the Abrahamic covenant? It's easy, if you've been here the last month or two, what happened in chapter 15? Chapter 15, God cut the covenant. You had that ceremony where Abram comes out and he brings the, uh, the various sacrifices and he kills the animals and he cuts them in half and he lays them out in a typical covenant-making ceremony for the ancient world. And after he lays out all of the animals, the standard procedure in a normal covenant or contract, remember, a covenant is a contract. And in any contract, you have two parties. Now, normally... Both parties would walk between the sacrificed animals. But God causes a deep, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abram so that he is unconscious and God, symbolized by the, uh, fi- by the torches and the fire pots, moves between the animals alone, indicating that God is binding himself alone to this covenant. That the, that the fulfillment, the activation of this covenant is totally dependent upon God. It's not dependent in any way upon Abram. That's positional truth. However, just like everything else in the spiritual life, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, experiencing the blessings of our position is dependent upon application of doctrine, learning the word and applying it, otherwise known as obedience to the word, applying doctrine. And that's what happens in chapter 17. Here, we're talking about the experiential aspect of the covenant for Abraham. He's already been given the covenant. The covenant was cut, signed, sealed, and delivered in chapter 15. Now God says, if I'm going to bless you, then in terms of the covenant, then this is what has to happen in terms of experiential obedience. Same thing's true in your Christian life. 
You have all these things that God gave you at the instant of your salvation. You are in the royal family of God. You are adopted as sons. You have all the magnificent blessings that you can imagine that are, that are ours in Christ. But they aren't yours actively until you're in fellowship, learning the Word and applying them under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Only then will you experience the blessings that God has for you in terms of spiritual growth and your spiritual life. So you have to maintain that distinction in your thinking between positional reality and experiential reality. So let's start in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, now Abram is going to live to be 175, so he's got 76 more years to go. And the Lord appears to him after 13 years. The last verse of chapter 16 said that Abram was 86 years old. So 13 years goes by. If you were going to dramatize this, you'd close the curtain and have an intermission between the two. You come back and Abram's 13 years older. Sarai is 13 years older and the situation seems more hopeless. But it's not because in this time, Abram is trusting God. He knows that God will provide what he has promised. So now the Lord appears to him and says to him, I am Almighty God, at least that's the traditional translation, I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless. So what does this mean? I am Almighty God. I am El Shaddai. Now, we don't really know what this means, that God is El Shaddai. We don't know what that term actually means. It's one of a series of divine names given in Genesis, beginning with the word El. El was a Hebrew generic name for deity. Just as we in English use the word God, G-O-D, can refer to any uh, deity or divine being in any religious system. The Greeks had the word theos. Many other uh, languages had a gener- have a generic word for God. That uh, word in Hebrew is El. But the word Shaddai is, well, we don't really know. I was reading through commentary on Genesis by Al Ross, who is my Hebrew professor at Dallas Seminary, his Ph.D. from Dallas, as well as a little school over in England called Cambridge in Hebrew, and probably written one of the finest uh, commentaries, one of the finest Hebrew scholars that I know. And after a page discussion on the, all the possibilities, he doesn't even draw a conclusion. He just says, we don't know. He doesn't even conclude that. He said that at the beginning, and then he rambles on. But this is one of many names related to El, the title of El for God in Genesis. At Beersheba, Abram, Abraham calls on the name of the Lord. El Olam is the Hebrew, meaning the eternal God or the God of eternity. This is in Genesis 21:33, And that name emphasizes the fact that God is eternal. There's no beginning and no end. Because God is eternal, it has specific application to the fact that we're not going to run out of God in terms of our problems. He's always going to be around. A second title that was used of God in Genesis is the one that Melchizedek used in Genesis 14:18. Melchizedek knew God as El Elyon, 
the God Most High. This emphasizes the sovereignty of God, that God is the ruler of the heavens and the earth, and he is exalted over everything else. The third use of El as a title is by Jacob. He identifies, uh, excuse me, the altar that he built in Shechem as El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. This is himself. Jacob is has a, another name that was given to him by God, and that is Israel. So he is emphasizing God as his personal God, the God who has uh, reconfirmed the covenant with Abraham and Isaac with Jacob. So the title Elohe Israel, El Elohe Israel, emphasizes the fact that God is a personal God, not some impersonal force like you have in Star Wars. It's not some idol of wood and stone. It is not just some nebulous thing out there uh, that has picked up the appellation of deity, such as in Hinduism. It is a personal God. Fourth, to Jacob he was... He was also revealed as El Bethel, the God of Bethel. This is where he had set up an altar and where God had reconfirmed his covenant uh, with Abraham and Isaac and had reconfirmed it with Jacob. God is a covenant-making and keeping God. This emphasizes God's faithfulness. Only in the Bible do you have a God entering into a contract with people. Now, that has tremendous implications that God sort of accommodates himself to us and enters into a legal contractual arrangement with human beings in order to spell out who he is and what he is going to provide for us so that we can count on it. There is certainty there. He's not going to change. has tremendous implications for the whole idea of, of the canon of Scripture, that there is a specific... Uh, authoritative group of books. Uh, if God is going to enter into a contract, then there, that, that has limitations. That's why we call it the, the Old Testament is really the Old Covenant. And God is a covenant-keeping God. He is faithful. He's not going to change and uh, be something different. And then a fifth uh, title used of God in the uh, in Genesis is the one used by Hagar in Genesis 16:13, where she called God El Ra'i, literally, or in the English it's usually written El Roy. It's El Ra'i, and it it means the God who sees. He had given a prophecy, and we studied that briefly last time. That his prophecy about Ishmael that he would be a a wild uh, donkey of a man, that his hand would be against everyone. And so God, uh, Hagar calls him the God who sees because he knows the future. He is omniscient. So these are some of the other titles related to the name El for God in the Old Testament. But when we come to El Shaddai, we're not sure exactly what that means. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of options. First of all, we have to recognize that this is one of the most popular names used of God in the Old Testament. El Shaddai is used 48 times, or at least Shaddai is used 48 times in the Old Testament. 
Most often it appears in the book of Job 31 times. Uh, everyone in the book of Job, all the main characters refer to God as Shaddai. This indicates that it's a very ancient uh, title for God. In Genesis and in Exodus 6, verse 3, and Ezekiel 10, verse 5, Shaddai is connected with the name or title El. So in those verses, those places, it's El Shaddai. Now, this has been understood to signify God the Almighty. That's a very ancient interpretation of the word. The Septuagint, remember the Septuagint was... uh, the translation that the Jews made of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek between the 3rd to the 1st century B.C. And the Septuagint translated Shaddai with the Greek word pantokrator. Pantokrator. Panto from all, pan from all, krator from power, power, creator, the all-powerful one. So the Septuagint, at least the Jews who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, thought that El Shaddai had to do with the power of God, his omnipotence. When Jerome translated the uh, Hebrew Old Testament into Latin, he borrowed this idea and he used the Latin word omnipotence to translate El Shaddai, and that is why the King James and some of the other earlier English versions translated God the Almighty. Some versions just leave it untranslated as El Shaddai. However, another view came out from the rabbis that was uh, embedded in the uh, Babylonian Talmud, the Haggigah, and the rabbin- the ra- many of the rabbis understood this to refer to the self-sufficiency of God, that He is the one who is self-sufficient, and there's a connection in terms of your, your, uh, the ideas of the power of God and the sufficiency of God, because God is all-powerful. He is sufficient for every situation and every problem in life. Now, these were pretty much the traditional understandings of the word up until you get into modern scholarship in the 20th century and typical of uh, contemporary scholarship. They go all over the place. Some have suggested that it means destroyer. Others suggest that it refers to mountains, and then as sort of an extrapolation from the mountain idea, some have suggested that it means uh, breath. In fact, one of the early 20th century Hebrew lexicons uh, understands it as the many-breasted God, indicating that he is the one who is able to provide nourishment and to... Uh, give provision for every situation and problem. But uh, these have all been pretty much disproven, lacking any evidence whatsoever, and so it's best to stick with the older Jewish scholarship ideas found either in the rabbis or the Septuagint that this has a reference to the sufficiency and the power of God, that he is the one who is able to do anything. So God refers to himself as El Shaddai, and then he gives two commandments to Abram, two mandates. The first is to walk before him, and this is the Hithpael imperative. 
and uh, of the word halak. Halak is the word to go. This is the same command that uh, God gave Abram when he said to go leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you back in Genesis uh, chapter uh, uh, 12, verse 1. But here it's in the Hithpael stem, and hidden the Hithpael stem, halak doesn't have the idea of literally walking, putting one foot in front of the other, but it's used metaphorically for living one's life. So here God is saying, not walk before me in terms of taking steps, but living your life in front of me. Now, in other passages in Genesis, we've seen that God walked with Adam in the garden. God walked with Noah, I mean, excuse me, with Enoch. Remember that passage in in, uh, Genesis chapter 5? God walked with Enoch. And then Enoch was was not. He just walked off into heaven with God. Well, this isn't walking with God. This is walking before God in the presence of God, so that God, so that your life is completely open and exposed to God, recognizing that in His omniscience, God sees, knows, and understands everything in our life. So God is commanding uh, Abram to walk openly before Him and to be blameless. Now, that sounds kind of difficult, doesn't it? Some of your older translations said, walk before me and be perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but I, don't, I know I can't achieve perfection. And so that is uh, extremely awkward when we read passages like that. And we have this word perfect that shows up again and again and again in the New Testament even. But it's, uh, it's really a mistranslation. When we read that word perfect, the concept that comes to our mind is the concept of sinlessness or flawlessness. Sinlessness or flawlessness. But that's not the idea in the original language. The Hebrew word is tamim. T-A-M-I-M, tamim. And I just cut and pasted this directly out of the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon. First meaning is complete or sound, that is complete, whole, or entire. See, that's not the idea of flawlessness at all, is it? It has to do with being, we can borrow the army slogan, be all that you can be. Gee, it's just being everything that God planned and intended for a human being to be as an image bearer of God, one who's created in the image and likeness of God. It has the idea of maturity, completion and maturity. It is comparable to the Greek verb teleao, uh, the nouns, adjectives, teleos, that whole word group in the New Testament, which has the idea of completion or maturity. Never, not once in all of Scripture do these words, when applied to human beings, have the idea of flawlessness or perfection. It's the idea of maturity. Let me show you a couple of examples from the, from the uh, New Testament. In dealing with, the, uh, with Paul's problem with the thorn in the flesh, God tells Paul, My grace is made perfect or complete in weakness. Now see, God isn't saying my grace becomes flawless. It already is flawless. But His grace is brought to completion or maturity in our lives as we recognize our weaknesses and rely completely and totally on God's grace. In fact, that passage 
is one of the key passages in Scripture for the sufficiency of God's grace, because that's what the next verse says. My grace is sufficient for you, because my grace is brought to, made complete in weakness. Another passage, key passage, Galatians 3.3. 3. Paul's just reamed out the Galatians because they have perverted the gospel of grace for a gospel of works, and now they have substituted a spiritual life based on grace for a spiritual life based on works. And he says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, or that is, begun by means of the Spirit in terms of your salvation? Are you now being made perfect? See, they weren't being made perfect. It's made to made mature or complete. He says, are you now being made mature by means of the flesh? That is a sin nature. See, that's how most Christians want to live the Christian life. They think they can go back to the law or a moral code and just pull themselves up by their own ethical bootstraps and somehow God's going to bless them for their spirituality. But that's just the opposite of what Paul is saying here. Paul says, you can't do it yourself. You have to do it by the Holy Spirit. And the key words in this passage, verse 3 of Galatians 3, are reiterated in Galatians 5, 16 and following that we are to walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible to bring to completion, there's that same word again, the works of the sin nature, showing that there's this battle between the Holy Spirit and the sin nature, and you're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking according to the flesh. You can't do both at the same time, and that when we uh, disobey God and are in the mode of self-reliance, then we're operating on the sin nature we confess our sins, then we're back walking by the Spirit until we just choose to uh, walk by our own power again. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, related to the ministry, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man, what? Complete, mature in Christ. That's the purpose of the pastoral ministry. It's not to encourage people, it's not to uh, have a dog and pony show, not to entertain people, not to be a uh, song leader, not to get involved in all of these gimmicks that are going on today, but it is to teach the whole counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation, every doctrine in the Scripture so that you can grow to spiritual maturity and be a mature believer learning to think biblically about everything in your life. So that is our goal, to present not perfect, but mature. Hebrews 2.10, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, says, For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation, that is, him, the, the, it was fitting for Him, that is, God the Father at the beginning, to make the captain of their salvation, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect through sufferings. Now, wait a minute. Jesus Christ was born perfect, didn't have a sin nature, born virgin conception, virgin birth, no sin nature. So he didn't become perfect, he became mature. He had to grow spiritually just as you and I do. And how does he do it? He went through various testings under the category of suffering. And that's not just physical suffering, just imagine what it must have been like for a perfect second person of the Trinity to live day in and day out, uh, rubbing shoulders with sinners. So he is made perfect, that is, made mature through sufferings. 
Hebrews 7.19, talking about the Old Testament. The, old, the law made nothing perfect, that is, mature. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. James 1.4, we'll wrap up here and let endurance have its not perfect result, but maturing result, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's your goal as a believer, is to become mature. That's what God is calling Abram to in verse 1. It's not positional, it's experiential. It's, I've already given you the covenant. Now walk before me and be mature. He says the same thing to us as believers in the church age. I've already saved you. You are already adopted into the royal family of God. I've already given you all the blessings in heaven. Now walk before me and be mature. Grow to maturity. That is the mandate. And then in verse 2, he says, And I will make my covenant between you, between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, what does he mean, I will make? That sounds in English like it's future tense. If you do this, I'll make my covenant with you. Well, we'll see this same terminology when we get into that center focus of uh, verse 9. Uh, when he t- says, to, says to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. And then he says, this is my covenant. When you get past all the verbiage in verses 9 through 14, what he's talking about is the application of the covenant now, not its inauguration. It was inaugurated in chapter 15. Now it's going to be applied uh, in one sense visibly and overtly through the overt sign of circumcision. And we'll come back and look at that, look at the name change, Abram's new position in terms of the covenant and what God is doing in the rest of the chapter in two weeks. Remember, next Tuesday and Thursday night, no Bible class during the week. I will be uh, teaching at Preston City Bible Church next week. So you get the week off to review notes, get caught up, figure out what's going on, and then we'll be back for, to continue our study in two weeks with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the challenge before us that we are to grow to spiritual maturity. We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we studied this evening and that God the Holy Spirit would make them real to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.